Well, good morning again, everybody. Good to see you. Uh, I need to pick on some of the senior citizens in our church family today. Uh, yeah, yeah. Now, not, not everyone. I was, re I was reminded that Miss Emmy will be gone next week and that she was going to turn 93. And then I mentioned a few weeks back that uh, I needed some more jokes. Well, I got one from Brother Jim Crow, who happens to be the eldest gentleman in our church. So if you don't like this, blame him, okay? Uh, it goes like this. A woman goes to her doctor worried about her husband's temper. The doctor asks her, what's the problem? And the woman says, doctor, I don't know. Every day my husband seems to lose his temper for no reason. It scares me. Doctor, I have, the doctor says, I have a cure for that. When it seems that your husband is getting angry, take a glass of water and start swishing it in your mouth. Just swish it. Don't swallow it until he either leaves the room goes to bed, or calms down. Two weeks later, the woman comes back to the doctor looking fresh and reborn. The woman says, Doctor, that was a brilliant idea. Every time my husband starts losing it, I swish with water, and I swish it back and forth, and he calms down. How does a glass of water change that and change him? And the doctor says, it's not the water that's doing it, it's you keeping your mouth shut. <laughs> As I said, that came from, that came from our, senior, our senior senior, Brother Jim. All right, good enough. Turn to your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. We're traveling through this uh, marvelous book and Last week, we again, we talked about Paul saying that those who are Abraham's descendants are people of faith, based upon a promise God gave him, and went through some Old Testament scriptures that proved his point. And now he goes a little bit further, anticipating that there's going to be some opposition to what he was saying. I said, we'll start with verse 15. Brothers... Let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say into his seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it is no longer depends on a promise. But God in his grace gave to Abraham through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. 
The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. If the law, therefore, opposed to the promise of God, absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scriptures declare that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Christ Jesus, might be given to those who believe. For this faith came, but we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put into charge to change, to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. As I said a moment ago, Paul had just finished proving from the Old Testament that no one is saved by the law, but they're saved by faith based upon a promise that God gave to Abraham. In fact, if we were to go back and look at that six times, if I count correctly, he quotes from the Old Testament. And he proves how insignificant the law was. But Paul was anticipating some rebuttal and some questions by the Judaizers who were defending the law. He was thinking that these Judaizers were going to say that the law was given to Moses, had annulled or surpassed the covenant with Abraham that was given so many years before. They were going to say that the covenant with Abraham was, was temporary and it was replaced by the law. Or they would say that it was set in place until God gave Moses something that was more perfect or more complete than the promise given to Abraham. And Paul's response that the covenant with Abraham was an unconditional covenant. It was a promise of, of a covenant of a promise. And it relied only upon God's faithfulness and therefore was always superior to the law. If there's anything that the Bible makes clear over and over again is the truth that all of us, all people, are saved only by grace in what Christ Jesus did on the cross, not by what anybody ever does themselves. And that's what this chapter and this text is about. Paul wants those to understand that our salvation rests upon a promise. And that leads to a question that Paul answers here. Why the law? If, if the law could not save anyone, why was the law given to us? Why, why did God give it? What is the reason for the law? And, and that's what Paul deals with here in our text this morning. We'll see that there was a reason the law was given, and we'll also see that there is a relationship between God's grace and promised Abraham and the law. There is a, they are coordinated together. He starts out by talking about how superior Moses, the promise to Abraham was to the law of Moses because it was based upon a covenant of a promise. 
And he gives a human illustration, an illustration that everyone in this room would understand, and that is basically that of a contract between two people or two parties. A contract cannot be changed. It can't be added to or, or set aside. A person just can't, cannot arbitrarily change the terms of a contract. And his point at his here is that if a person can change a contract, or cannot change a contract, excuse me, how much less is a covenant that God made, how that cannot be annulled or changed. The Judaizers were saying that the giving of the law changed that covenant of promise. And Paul argues it did not change that promise. That promise from God to Abraham was superior because it's unchangeable. And so Paul argues that once a permanent binding contract is written and signed, it cannot be changed. And since God's promised salvation by faith, the same faith that Abraham was, it was a binding contract. And then nothing, absolutely nothing, not even the law, would change that fact. And he gives a spiritual application. He says it's centered upon Christ. He goes back and quotes out of Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, when it says, and your seed, not seeds, if you notice there in that text. It's your seed referring to Christ. Abraham did not make a covenant with God. God made the contract or covenant with Abraham. God didn't lay down any rules or regulations or conditions to be met by Abraham. It was a covenant of grace, a promise that he made to Abraham. And Abraham did nothing other than what he believed God, as we talked about last week. Every promise in that covenant given to Abraham was fulfilled in Christ and Christ alone. And still today, the only way you and I, any individual, any human being can, can have part of that promised blessing to Abraham is through faith in Christ. Paul actually quotes that later on in, in this chapter and in chapter 4. Just let me read verse 29 of chapter 3. It says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And then over in chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, But you are sons. God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. He goes on and proves that and defends that we are heirs in Christ because of faith in Christ and nothing else. There has never been and there never ever will be salvation apart from what Christ did on the cross. No other way, no other person, no other means. And Paul argues then that the promise is superior because it was given long before the law of Moses. And that promise has been carried on from generation to generation. God's promise was built upon His grace through faith. Sound familiar? Grace through faith. The law was added later. And the law could not void that covenant or that contract 
that God had made with his people. I think in verse 18 we see that the law really was incomplete. An inheritance based upon laws or depends on or depending upon a person's performance is really not an inheritance. Let me give an example. If I were to write in my will and tell Brother Ken down here that you will inherit a million dollars if you take care of me in my old age, then you will inherit a million dollars when I die. That would be depending upon his performance. But the fact that my will states that my children will inherit a buck 290 when I pass away, uh, they get it because of their heritage, not because of a performance that they do. An inheritance of a promise depends upon God and is given unconditionally to all who believe. Then that leads us to our question, then why the law? Why did God give us the law? If salvation is by grace through faith, and it is, built upon God's promise to us, not on laws, not on works, not anything we were to do, what did the law do? What does the law do today? It tells us it was really temporary until the seed had come. But beyond that, the law reveals that we are sinful as people. The law displays that there's an inability on the part of any person to please God by our self-efforts. The law is given so that it literally drives a person to accept God's grace and His mercy. The law shows us how much we need a Savior. And of course the Savior is Jesus Christ and Him alone. When you or I look at the law, we just don't see that we are sometimes wrong or slightly flawed. Quite honestly, it's much worse than that. The Bible tells us very clearly that we are sinners that we miss the mark, that we are less than perfect. But the Word of God, the law tells us that we are sometimes very rebellious. There are times in our stubbornness, we just literally say no to God. The law lets us know that, that we are literally corrupt inwardly. Our hearts are, are crooked. The law lets us know that we can actually be very wicked people, immoral. It's just more than just being a little bit wrong or flawed. Sin simply is defined by what we see. Sin is defined as anything that is contrary to God's holy character. Remember David's sin. And his, with that Bathsheba and over in Psalm 51, his confession, he says, against you, referring to God, you and you alone have I sinned. 
All sin ultimately is against God. It's offensive to God. And the law just lets us see how sinful we truly are. God came to Abraham and promised him that he was going to provide a Savior. And Abraham believed God. And God promised to save him who would believe. Believe in God's plan of salvation. Believe in his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see it there? It says the law was temporary. Verse 19, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was temporary. The covenant is permanent. David Platt makes a delightful statement here. Listen to me as I read it. Notice the temporary nature of the law. It was given until something else would come. Actually, until someone else would come. The Mosaic law, with all of its ceremonies and its rituals and its priesthood and sacrifices, was given until Christ came. It was all a shadow pointing to the substance, Christ. Everything in the law is shouting, look to Christ. Jesus came to fulfill the law. And in so doing, he obeyed the law of God perfectly for us. And that's something we cannot do. The law ended when Christ came. He died on the cross, was buried, and rose again. The law, in a sense, is done. The righteous demands of the law are fulfilled in the life of a Christian because we believe, because the Lord has given us the Holy Spirit that speaks to our hearts. The law does not make us a sinner. The law shows us that we are sinners. The law is sort of like a mirror that we look into. We stand condemned. John 3.18 says this, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. One of my favorite verses, one of my go-to verses that just continually says, the Word of God tells us we stand condemned and all need Jesus. We need to have the ability to see ourselves as sinful, as we truly are. We have to stop making excuses for our sin. We have to stop thinking that, well, I'm not so bad. We have to stop looking at someone else and say, I'm better than he is or she is. Because if we do that, we're always going to find somebody that's worse than we are. We have to stop thinking, well, I'm not such a big sinner. We have to stop this thinking that I can just do better and everything will be all right. Or I can clean up my act. Oh, how many times I've heard those words. Any person, you or I, will never ever understand our need of a Savior until we acknowledge how sinful we are. The law shows us that. That The law is is a mirror to, to, to display that. James Writes these words, chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. Do not merely listen to the words and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. 
Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in this, not forgetting that he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. That mirror exposes who we are. I look in the mirror, and sadly, I see wrinkles. And I've gotten to the age where I see age spots. I wish they weren't there, but they are. The mirror reveals who I am and what I look like. The law just shows us how sinful we are and that we need Jesus Christ in our lives as our Lord and Savior. The promise that God gave Abraham was that a Savior was going to come. We can ask the question then, is there a conflict between the law and the promise? And the answer is absolutely not. The law was really given to the Jews to regulate their lives on how to live together peacefully. It was never ever given for spiritual life. The law compared to grace and promise have different functions. And they do not work against each other. The law shows us how sinful we are. The law shows us we stand condemned because of our sin. The law shows us that we are bound to sin. But this is where law and grace work together. You see, the law shows us how guilty we are, but grace and the promise offers us forgiveness and a relationship with God, freedom, and heaven forever. Christian is in Christ. If you notice there in verse 22 and 23, it says that the, we are prisoners to sin. We are prisoners by the law. The law can't change our hearts. The sins that bind us and by nature, we're born sinners, and then sins that we commit keep us bound. The Bible tells us we're dead spiritually. Ephesians 2, 1 says, as you know, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We were spiritually dead. But the word of God shows us our sin. And I love what the writer of the book of Hebrews says in 4, 12. says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to the dividing of soul and spirit, the joints and marrows, and it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. The Word of God shows us exactly who we are, and the only solution is Jesus Christ. When an individual turns to Him, the Bible tells us that we become a new creation. We're different. It talks about it being a spiritual birth. We're, we're born again. It tells us that He gives us a new heart. And that's what's wrong. You see, we can have all the head knowledge in the world. We can understand that there is a God. We can acknowledge Him intellectually, but until we get that truth into our heart and it changes us, nothing ever changes until the heart changes, who we really are inside. 
And Christ, by faith in him, will give us a new heart. The reason for the law, verse 24, the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. King James Version says it's a schoolmaster, a teacher, a tutor to lead us to Christ. Paul's point here is this. The law has its purpose so that people see they need Jesus. They see that they need the promise of salvation. Salvation by faith. The same faith that Abraham had. Faith in the Messiah, the Savior. And God's desire is that all people come to know Him. Come to know Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you've never turned to Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, you believe that what He did on the cross, He did for you, specifically for you. He took your sins upon Himself. This is so hard for us to sometimes to understand, but every sin that I have ever committed or ever will commit, He took upon Himself so that when I come to Him in faith, He pays the penalty that I deserved and I am set free because of what Jesus did on the cross. And he did that for each and every one of us in this room. What we deserved when we turned to Jesus Christ in faith and acknowledge what he did on the cross was for me, me personally. Not, not, no offense, not somebody over here or over here. Me. He did it for me. Out of his grace and his love and his mercy, God sent Jesus into this world to die in my place. And he offers to us and to me forgiveness when that faith we have is put in what Jesus did. And he has promised new life, a new heart, and a new birth, being born again. If you've not done that today, I want to encourage you to turn to Jesus And by faith, accept him as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, if you're dealing with a heart, and I believe you are, I just ask you to give them the courage to say yes to you, to turn to Jesus. Respond to the truth of the gospel. We just thank you again for your wonderful love and grace. A promise made to Abraham. And promise to each and every one of us. We just have to believe you. Thank you again. In the name of our Savior, we pray. Amen.